audio transfer of a YouTube video featuring Carla Turner and her husband Elton Casey Turner. This was, as far as I can tell, recorded in 1993 at the International UFO Congress, which at the time was held at the Showboat, a great big casino in Las Vegas. Uh, at the very beginning, she thanks Bob Brown. So this talk uh, being recorded in 1993 uh, presently is 2014, so that puts this at uh, over 21 years ago. And it is shocking at how little has been added to this debate, as how little has been added to the data pool of what is going on here in the last 20 years. Um, it saddens me. Uh, I have been making an attempt to catalog uh, some of Dr. Carla Turner's talks. And these talks, uh, mostly I'm finding them on YouTube. For me personally, I find it a little distracting, a little challenging to listen to a YouTube video. Uh, I'm not really interested in sitting in front of my computer and listening to this thing for hours. And then what I find much easier is having it transferred to an MP3 player. And then I can listen to the audio either driving in my car, on my stereo, while I wash the dishes, on and on and on. So, uh, and I have uh, been cataloging these as audio MP3s. And um, they are all linked on my website. I think that Dr. Carla Turner's voice is very strong. She is sharing something that, you know, quite honestly, I, I, am, I am agnostic in a way as to the overall source of this very challenging subject. Dr. Carla Turner paints a fairly grim, fairly dark portrait of what may be going on. Uh, other people paint something a little more light, a little more loving. Uh, other folks paint something even more dire than what, she's, what she says. I, I, I want to be very careful not to weight one side of this uh, very polarized debate more than the other. Well, debate's the wrong word. These first-hand experiences that are reported by people, I, I want to be very careful not to weight one side more than the other for obvious reasons. These are very real people telling their stories, and I, it's, not my, it's not my role to judge what may have happened to them. All I can do is listen very carefully. This talk, given by both uh, Carla Turner and her husband, Elton Casey, I think he's introduced only as Casey here, but, uh, but it's my understanding his full name is Elton Casey, Elton Casey Turner. Uh, this talk is about one hour long. Please enjoy. Most of you are some of you familiar with the story that we told about our first year in the book, Into the Fringe. Well, we're very limited, as Bob said, on time. I could talk the rest of the evening and tell you what's in the book. I would recommend, if you are interested in the full account, and it covers over a year and a half of our first dealing with this. Of course, it had gone on since childhood, as we all discover when you get the trigger. You have time to remember, like they've told us. The memories do come back, and I've tried to fill in as much as I could in the book into the fringe about those first uh, months of dealing with this. Uh, bookstores carry it. It's a paperback publication. $5. I said, my friends are poor. Make it a cheap book. They did. Uh, if they don't have it in stock, they can order it for free. It's not a problem. And it's in, they've gone to a second printing, so it should be easily available. I didn't bring them to sell because normally when I come to a conference, I spend all of my time one-on-one -on -one with people who have stories I need to hear rather than selling something. So I apologize for not being more prepared. But I'm not going to go through everything. I'm just going to tell you we are so typical at Hertz. We had UFO sightings. We've dealt with the gray things. I don't think they're aliens, but that's a personal opinion. I think they make those out of the fetal material they take from us. We've had the insectoids, both myself as a child and my son as a grown man. We've had the reptoids, and they leave their nasty little claw mark signatures. And besides dealing with them, if uh, if you've dealt with these beings, you've dealt with something pretty robust and pretty aggressive, and we have, unfortunately. We've had the voices that talk to us in the night and in the day. We've had the typical missing time scenarios. We've had the helicopters buzzing the house all manner of day and night, and uh, the other kinds of seemingly human harassment being followed, having the phones interfered with, mail stolen and interfered with. We've had the body marks of every sort, from the punctures, the bruises, the claw marks, the scratches, the slices, the cuts, 
the triangles. It's a very typical story, but the details in everyone's story, what is most typical is that there are always unique elements to it. It is not a pattern that everybody gets imprinted with just certain things, and if any researcher tells you that, they're, they're not a, a person who's been through this. We've had, the, as Debbie was talking about, the, tel the lucid dreams or the vi virtual reality dreams day and night. You, these are contacts, in my estimation, both as one who's had them and as one who's researched them now for almost six years with other cases. Those are, to, to me, every bit of val as valid a contact as when they come physically and take you because they are interfering and intruding into your reality and into your experiences through these things. We have been given the warning, warnings, the messages, and the predictions, and I'll tell you now that within the circle of our family and friends who had these things explode in our lives all at the same time in 88 and 89, that predictions were made. They're very clever in their predictions. They give you a few things up front that do come true right off, so you'll buy the bait and believe it all, but the big predictions they made have not come true. And they have, of course, told us we have our jobs to do. I hope to God I'm doing mine now, and I hope I'm doing the right one and not the one they may have decided I needed to do. But I think working with others, being supportive, keeping people from feeling as lost and alone and frightened as we did in the beginning is a very important job, and I do it full time. I no longer teach college English. This is what I do, and I don't do it for pay. And believe me, I have proof here that you've got to have a support system of some sort. Somebody's got to do that, and I thank God every day for my husband. Uh, so these are the typical things that I talk about in the book. I thought I would focus for this experience, or this event, on some things that didn't get included in the book so that you won't read the same thing as you're hearing now. As I said, it only dealt with our experiences from December of 87 when the trigger sighting for my husband occurred, and he'll talk in, on his own about some of these things through about uh, the beginning of early 91. And of course, things have continued since then, as they always do. Some of the things that weren't covered in the book, however, occurred during the time frame of the book, and I simply didn't have the background to put it all together. I had the job I could do in a limited time. When Debbie talked about losing her dog, I got my own emotional response to that because we had a similar incident in our backyard in the summer of 89. We were having an intensive series of very repressed events, nonetheless leaving their signatures, and we could not make heads or tails out of what was going on until at least one point, whatever manifest in the backyard left its circle. Unlike Debbie's, it wasn't on the ground. It was about two feet off the ground in about a 30-foot diameter circle that took in the shrubbery and the trees that were within this circle. Trees on one side of the yard exploded, twisted, and blackened. The shrubbery across on the other side of the art melted, flattened, and fused back together and kept growing. We have this uh, has been tested by two different uh, university labs. They don't know what did it, or at least they're not saying. They don't have an explanation. And we had a dog in the backyard at the time who, instead of developing the massive cancer, the vet said the entire immune system was shot out and the dog began to suffer open, oozing, bleeding sores to such an extent, as well as the cataracts and the deafness, that it had to also be put to sleep. So we have only that physical evidence to offer those of you who say, where's your hard proof? Well, I've got the melted, fused shrubbery. We've got the dead dog report. We've got only very few things. If you want hard evidence, you, you're going to be very frustrated. You're going to have to either listen and take it as it feels to you when we report what the scientists call mere anecdote. But the mere anecdote is the truth from case to case to case. We also had um, the little phone man in the backyard during all of this that I didn't report on. We had a very large security fence around our home that was padlocked from the inside. You could not get in from the outside without internal admission being given to you. And I came home from teaching one day and found a little oriental man in a phone uniform in my backyard messing with the telephone box. And I could not figure how he got into the backyard and I was very disturbed. And what are you doing here? And he was very smiley and very sweet and said, oh, we're just replacing all the phone lines in this, on this block. Uh, we're, that's all. Don't worry about it. Go about your business. I checked with all of my neighbors, and nobody else had a phone man in their backyard. I don't know where that came from. But we had such phone interference, I tend to think it wasn't merely a bugging. They can bug you without touching your lines. This was not a necessity if they simply wanted to listen to us. 
we do assume now we are listened to. Uh, we just don't think we can keep any secrets, so it's not a problem of what we're trying to keep back to protect ourselves. We feel the only protection is to talk about it. If we talk about it openly, maybe they'll quit bugging us so much in private. We also had, you've heard of MIBs, we had an MIBC that was extremely unusual. A um, few years before, we were the day before we were leaving to go to the Ozark UFO conference, which I, if any of you are in the Midwest or want to come to another excellent conference, I certainly recommend it. It'll be Easter weekend in Eureka Springs in Arkansas, and we go every year. We were talking on the phone, and this is one of the things about phone interference. When they start cutting you off and messing with your conversations, in our case and many others, it's only when you're talking about UFO material. It's not when you're getting recipe for law. And we were discussing um, plans to go to the conference on a long-distance call, and as has happened innumerable times, the phone went click, 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 and went dead. In every other case, we've been able to hang up the phone, pick it back up, redial, and continue. And this time, it wouldn't reconnect. And um, I tried, my husband tried for several minutes, couldn't get a line, and we were getting very frustrated because this wasn't our normal kind of interference. We wanted to complete that call, and my husband's a wonderfully kind, mild, gentle-tempered man, but this was pushing his buttons at that time. I'd given up and started out the door, it was all in the living room, along the living room where the phone was, and I'd started out the door to go to a neighbor's to report the phone being out of order, because this time apparently it really was. And as I reached the door, he was still hanging up and trying and hanging up and trying, and it finally just had enough and started, and I won't use the language, cussing every intelligence organization the United States has by name, let go of my phone. And as he was doing this, I started out the door and saw the picture window, a huge black sedan, very shiny, pull around the corner and start creeping up in front of our house. The windows were very darkened, but I could still see in it a single man driving the car with a short crew cut, a black suit, a white shirt, a black tie, big black sunglasses. And since we were, the house was on the passenger side, he was leaning way over, looking out the passenger window directly into my face in the window. And I turned to my husband at just that point long enough to say, honey, come here, there's a big black car outside. And then I turned back around and the car was gone. And our street is two blocks long before you can get off of it in a residential neighborhood. And I was out the door in a matter of two seconds and there was no car anywhere. So we had men in black car disappearance. Uh, and when he mentioned, I think it was the cussing of the NSA, miraculously, we got our phone back. Congratulations. All right. <laughs> you know, I would, I would go along with what Debbie told you. Fear is not something that's useful for someone who goes through this. I deal with, in my research, a great deal of disturbing, traumatic, and negative material, but I am not a disturbed, traumatic, or negative person. In fact, I'm a very joyous and happy person, and this joy has grown through the last couple of years to such a point, sometimes I feel giddy with the joy and the knowledge I'm doing what is right. So apparently dealing with the bad doesn't turn you bad. It, doing what is right and dealing with it gives you strength. I have no more fear. I think that the one thing we've learned from individual cases is if you're having some things happen you want to resist, don't react with fear. If anything, react with anger. They don't like that. They suck the fear from you every chance they get, but you throw anger at them and they're out of there. We had an event in 1988 in the middle of the night that began with a certain series of sounds and events, and we had a dual missing time of 30 minutes during this, and we were very frightened when it happened. Right after the miniseries, or right during the time the miniseries Intruders was running on TV last year that Debbie told you about, an identical situation at the identical time, 3.03 in the morning, began again with the same series of onsetting sounds and events. And instead of coming out of the bed in great fear, I came up out of the bed and said, boys, you picked the wrong night tonight. I'm ready for you. I'm kicking the ass tonight. And they were out of there. So there are ways to build, build your own strength if you want to resist. Do not give them fear. There is at least one group within this organization that enjoys and seeks and in fact manipulates the production of fear in us and takes it as we take energy from a battery. And I say don't give it to them. Give them something they don't want. Give them resistance. Also at the time I wanted to include a couple of things in the book that, had, uh, that were not in the book that I didn't know about at the time I wrote the book. Talk about repressed memories. Both of us had had things in our past we knew were unusual and unexplainable, but we were kept from thinking about them. This is typical of a lot of abductees. Until the trigger time, until it's time to remember, you simply don't think about the most extraordinary things. They happen and you push them back. 
I was finally to the point uh, dealing with this where I was ready to tell some members of my family about it, and that's a very hard thing. These are the people who would support you if you'd been raped, if you'd been robbed, if you'd gotten cancer, and in many, many cases when you've been abducted, they don't want to touch you. So it's a risk a lot of us take when we finally do open up to our families, and I was beginning to talk to my family about this. My son, who's grown and is now a father himself, <clears throat> was the product of a previous marriage and we decided it was time his dad knew what was going on and so we called his dad and his wife who had been married for many years it was a very amicable situation to come over and talk to them about this and as we began to go through the things we wanted to tell them bulb ideas began to go off in my ex-husband and my father my son's father's mind and he said do you think that had anything to do then with the time he lost the baby and uh, I said what baby he said, the time you miscarried. And I said, what in the heck are you talking about? I was never pregnant but the one time. And he said, what do you mean? I said, you're, you're, you're hallucinating. And his wife said, no, he told me about this years ago. What do you mean you don't remember? You're the one it happened to. And apparently in 1970, I had had a pregnancy, even though I was on the pill, that I don't recall, and had a night a few months after that where I went through massive pain and hemorrhaging in fact, my ex-husband said there was so much blood, he didn't even try to clean up the, the bedclothes. He simply threw them away. But when he went through, there was no fetal material. There was just massive blood. And that I was in extreme pain. I was very upset. And he would not, he could not talk me into letting him take me to the doctor or the hospital. I refused to get any help. I have no memory of this. I believe him. I'm not saying he's a liar. It has never come back to my consciousness. I simply have it as a secondhand story of something I went through. At the same time, talking to friends who were living there in the town at the time this happened and telling them about what had gone on with us, four different friends said, do you think that's, he's, they, two different couples I had gone to, four friends all together said, that's probably what went on then the time you came to us in hysterics saying you didn't know where you'd been for the last 12 hours. And I said, what are you talking about? I never did that. And four different people confirmed twice in this several month period of time, I had turned up in great hysterics, very upset because I had in one case had 12 hours of missing time, in another case 24 hours of missing time, and my great hysteria was I didn't know what was going on with my three-year-old son when I was missing. I have never recovered those hours either, and I have no memory of that. I just have the words of my friends. So there were many things even that I could have included in that book at the time I hadn't got the knowledge of. And it's true, there are still things that have gone on since the book that if, unless you go through regression after every event, you really don't recover a lot. And they do keep you very suppressed. You have fragments, as she said, very choppy memories. And even with hypnosis, you often get only parts of the story. And the woman that I, the only woman on the planet I would trust to work with us in regression is in another state, so it's very rare we get a chance to do the work. Many things have happened to us that I have not been able to explore. In the last year, well, for a while, after we left Texas, we, we had one of the compulsions that comes upon abductees that said, you must get out of a metropolitan area. You must get to a rural area. You must get your own water source. You must get your own fuel source. You must get prepared to help your family and friends survive. Never been a survivalist in my life. Never lived on a farm. Never done a thing. I was a city girl, but nonetheless the compulsion was so strong that we worked relentlessly for two years until we were able to achieve this goal and we sit at that time moved to rural Arkansas and bought our acreage and got our water and got our house and we're ready now for whatever it is and the compulsion has certainly left us. When we left Texas, things seemed to calm down a lot and I thought, aha, it was just that area. We moved out of there, they're going to leave us alone for a while and we did have peace relatively for quite a few months. But a year ago, October, they announced they were back. And it began in the middle of the day. I was working on a book about another man's experiences that I've written but I haven't had a publisher for yet. And I was going over the manuscript and in the middle of the living room, in the middle of the room, a ball of white light suddenly appeared and exploded so noiselessly, leaving a golden ring in the room. My dogs, I have two wonderful chihuahuas that were there with me. They saw it, I saw it. What in the heck was that? 
couldn't figure it out, nothing outside. If there had been an explosion, perhaps, explode, I was seeing a reflection of, I kept waiting to hear a sound. There wasn't any. It was just a silent, exploding light, and I tended to ignore it. You do tend to rationalize and try to normalize as much as you can. Well, I don't know what that was, but I'll keep working. Five minutes later, the side of the house was hit by a force that was so strong, I thought the side of the kitchen wall was going to collapse. My dogs and I jumped up and ran to this door into the garage this wall was attached to to see if a bear or three had come in and was banging on the house, because we are in the woods where there are bear. The garage door was down, closed. There was nothing in the garage. And I said, okay, I get the message, something's back. As long as all you're doing is flashing lights and beating on the house, I won't gripe. Leave me alone. But from that time on, things began to be unusual. A series of strange noises, uh, so ridiculous I could get you in stitches laughing at them. We had the invisible giant woodpecker in the living room. Um, all a, a conversation we each heard the other say to, the, to each other that neither of us said to each other. I mean, little games being played all around, and I was thinking, secondary stuff, fine. I can handle that. I'm dealing with people who have real problems. If it's just noises and woodpeckers and lights, I'm okay. But we also had some new sightings. In October, after this started, we got a call one night. I was cooking dinner for a friend and my husband, and um, got a call right as I was getting everything on the stove from a neighbor who lives across the ridge. Everybody's got 10, 15, 20 acres, so we're not like next door to each other. And the neighbor called and said, we've been watching a UFO for about the last five or 10 minutes. You guys want to come out and have a look? Well, I've got things frying and I can't go, but my husband and friends say, yeah, we'll be up there. And they run up the road and they did have a sighting of the thing that our neighbors had been watching as, as it was leaving. When it began, it was about a quarter mile from the house. And I thought, darn, missed it because I was cooking. Although in my heart of hearts, I'll tell you now, I think UFO sightings are at best a distraction to keep us from paying attention to what's going on on the ground. So I'm not one who goes out to look for them. I find we have learned nothing in 50 years of every scientist in every group and everyone in the world measuring and, and recording and, and going over sightings. We haven't learned the first thing about what they are and where they come from, so I think it's a big waste of time. But it's, nonetheless, you got one in the neighborhood, you probably look. <laughs> the next month, however, as I was strolling up the driveway along an incline up to the road, uh, my mother-in-law lives in a cottage next to us, not farther from here to the wall from our house, and I was walking the driveway between us. And we have large, tall trees. When you have a thick forest, the trees get thin and tall, and these are pretty tall trees. And utterly silently came something that's the strangest thing I've ever seen. And I'd had three UFO sightings before. This was the strangest I'd ever had. It was about the length of a boxcar. It was rectangular like a boxcar. It was about as wide as a boxcar, but about half the height of one. It was brown metallic. It was coming directly above my mother-in-law's cottage over the tree line, right almost above me. I could see underneath it there was a bar dividing or an indention dividing it in half like a domino's divided in half. And at the corner of each of, each of the corners of the boxcar and at each corner of the dividing line were large amber yellow lights. It was a moving about this speed, totally silent, right above the trees, and just kept going. Now, if anybody's had a boxcar sighting, I'd love to compare notes. We had had reports of a similar object in northern Arkansas, but I'm in central Arkansas and certainly didn't know one in our area who had seen anything like this. And your reactions, remember Debbie talking about her husband when he saw the light out in the yard and what he do instead of getting up to explore, he goes to bed? You are under control. Every time something happens, there is a control exerted, so you don't react as you normally would. Now, you'd think somebody who's a full-time researcher and an abductee having a sighting at treetop level over your house, you would run like heck to get it. You would go get your camera. You would go tell somebody. And, of course, my first few seconds were that response. And then immediately, as if somebody had dropped Valium into me, it was, oh, well, doesn't matter. I think I'll continue strolling. And when I eventually turned back and came into the house, I said, well, I could have come and got you. You might want to go have a look. It might still be there, but I don't think so, la-di-da. This is not me, and this is not how I would react. There was a control exerted. We had other incidents through this year that have shown the same kind of suppression of our natural response to things. Um, do you want to tell about the one you saw at the window, and I'll leave that to you? Okay. I had an incident. We are, in, we are near uh, a military base in 
in the central Arkansas area that does training flights of C-130s. And we know very well what a C-130 looks like and what it sounds like because they come over the area quite a lot. At 1.105 in the morning, I was awakened by the sound of a C-130 that had just appeared to reach the edge of our house area. And my first thought waking up was, I'm calling that Air Force Base in the morning and they're not going to fly these things at 1 o'clock at night over my house anymore. That's too disturbing because I had let them know it was too early or too late at night. Don't do that. we got to sleep, you know. And 105 in the morning, really bad timing for this 130 to be right above the house that loud, and I kept waiting for it to go ahead and fly over, and it didn't. And it didn't. And it didn't. We had a C-130 sound hovering over the house for about five minutes. Did I get up out of bed and look? No. Did I wake my husband up? No. Five minutes later, what do I do? Say, oh, well, I go back to sleep. I have not had a chance with regression work to see what may have happened at the time. But again, this is not how one normally reacts. And then as I talked about last night, I had the contact in May where I had the Jacob and Esau scenario played out. And I think most of you may have heard that if you were there last night. I hate to be repetitive. I was going to save it for tonight, but I was asked to talk about it then. This was the only time since 1980 that I've had a contact in which I was not, to my knowledge, abducted. I was given a message, a warning about the deception being used in the, in the manipulation genetically of the race to change our species into something more useful for these beings' purposes than what we currently are. Apparently, whatever they did to us in the beginning to make us useful has petered out and they need to do some more messing with us and I was given a scenario based on a biblical story to warn me about the deceptions being used to do this, but I was not, as far as I can ascertain, abducted, nor was I physically touched, and for that I am profoundly grateful. It may have been then from the good side that sometimes does seem to give us some help and some information, which I had been praying for very deeply for about a year, and I appreciated having the difference. In my mind, I have used the rule of thumb till I know better, good things don't abduct. We don't allow humans to abduct us. We call it an, a criminal offense because it is on every book, I think, of the laws in this country, a criminal offense to do so. And I don't think that anything has the right to break those moral laws against us. I wouldn't accept it from you and I won't accept it from them, so I was very grateful to have an encounter from a force other than the abducting, poking, prob probing type that gave me information I had been asking for. I think we need to pay attention, but even with that, to be cautious, to be skeptical, and to take nothing at face value. The Bible tells us to test and try the spirits. It doesn't say, believe every word they tell you. And I try to use that as my rule of thumb. More important than what is, I mean, I'm talking about personal experiences here, but part of my personal experiences are the research I do with other abductee cases and other people who are wishing to make sense of theirs. And I'm very fortunate to be contacted by some extraordinary people whose events and experiences I learn from. I hope I'm helping them as well, but I know I certainly benefit from it. And there's where the focus of my personal work is right now, with especially right Right this moment, nine extraordinary women around this country whose cases make ours look like a Sunday school picnic as far as intensity and information. I, I, will, I do have a publisher for this book. It should be out late next year with any luck on my part of getting it all together. And I hope you'll have a look at because the things we went through are so illuminated by what these people have gone through that we've learned reams from dealing with these parallel events. Much new information is coming out on those that shed light on, for instance, the military abduction my husband had. We have four of the cases of these nine women who've had intense military intervention and activity in their experiences, so we're working to put this material together for all of us to learn from. We've also begun to get a lot of extremely important and precise information on the nature and use of the implants that people are having, and they trade them out. You don't get one in the beginning and they leave it forever. They trade them out, they put them in different places, they have different functions, and some of it's extraordinarily important for us to start understanding and trying to deal with, and I hope that 
the information I've gathered from these people and in my personal research will be available to all of you as soon as possible. The good news I want to share with you in our own case and with some of these others is that something seems to be changing. It's not SOP anymore. Standard operating procedure is shifting. Not only does there seem to be a clear sense of increased activity on the parts of the aliens, but there seems to be an increased experience on the part of the abductees to be resistant, to be more empowered, and to begin to see through the illusions that the, that the deceptive ETs very, very often use to manipulate us. And for this, I am very hopeful and very joyous. We are having case after case now in the midst of an encounter where an illusion is being offered or thrust upon the person and they're not buying it. They're seeing through it and they're calling the bluff and it seems to be making a lot of difference. I am very uh, moved by and, and heartened by one of these nine women who will be in the book. I, she goes by Anita in the book who has never had hypnosis. Nobody's planted anything in this woman's mind. We have not even met face to face. We've done all our research through correspondence, phone calls, and family uh, questioning and investigation on the surface level, the conscious level. Throughout her life, her family has had many of these experiences. And she was reminding me the other day of how, like I said, we're beginning to see through the illusions. She said, you know, the, the little white ones, what they call the gray ones, I guess, she says, I got the distinct sense they could care less about us. They have a job to do, and, and they do it as best they can, and we're more or less just the project. She says, they don't tend to try to make us feel very good one way or the other about it. But she said, the tan ones, now they're different. She says, they, they really take a great deal of effort to try to convince us of how much they love us. Because, oh, they can bombard us with love. I mean, shower us with love and get inside us and make us love them back and feel this kinship and bond with them and merge with us and you are I and I am you and we're all one. And she said, the last time they did with this with me, I was standing there and one of the ten ones was just beaming this love into me. And she said, I felt so bad for him. I had to reach out and pat him on the face and say, too bad it's not real. <laughs> Seeing through the illusions is the big step forward that people are making one at a time, and I'm very, very hopeful that we're going to be developing a resistance technique, and it's going to have to happen one at a time, but I think it's spreading quickly. In fact, I think we're doing now what other species in crisis situations have done throughout history. You put a species into a deep enough crisis situation and something starts to change. If it's mutating, if it's evolutionary leaping, I don't know what you call it, but they begin to develop new capabilities, new even physical manifestations to give us a chance of surviving this crisis. And what I'm beginning to see, I feel I could be very wrong, but I'm going to throw it out there for everybody to, to, to watch and test. Test this as you go through other people's experiences and your own and see if you find this true also. More and more I begin to see that this may be the time we are being forced to develop resistance, coping, survival techniques we have not needed in the past. Now, I don't mean to make light of this, but if we have been farmed by this group for eons, it seems to me the cows are waking up. And this isn't going to be pleasant for the farmers. It's not pleasant always for the cows, but it's necessary if we're going to quit marching like obedient blind animals down the path that they lead us. Perhaps this is a time where we're moving from the bicameral mind to the tricameral mind. Perhaps it's a time now we're developing new perceptions, new mechanisms, new abilities to perceive these things coming into us from other dimensions so that we can deal with them in a more resistant and more equally prepared and a stronger way. And as I see this from case after case where people are penetrating the illusions, learning how to stop and resist things they don't want going on. I tend to think that is our hope. We're not a dead species. The game isn't over and we haven't lost. These beings go to so much trouble to make us think there's nothing we can do about it that I think they're lying. I think they're afraid we will find something we can do about it. And this is where the battle lines really lie at this point. At least it is my hope. Now, I've talked about just some of the details since the time of the material in the book. I hope that if you're interested, you'll be able to find it and catch up with us. It's an ongoing thing, and I will keep you informed along the way. But details are one thing. 
what really hits home is how it feels. And I have left that to the most eloquent member of my family, my husband, to talk to you from the inside, from the abductee point of view, and I hope you'll make Casey very welcome. anybody, but at least in a public forum. However, there's a few things have been happening to us, as she, as she explained, and it began to get on my nerves pretty heavily, and so I thought that perhaps in agreement with Bob's invitation to come and speak to you, that I would share some of my, some of my thoughts and some of my feelings about what's been going on. First, I'd like to give you just a little background on some of the events that she, she alluded to. It was about a year ago, I believe, that I woke up one night having had this remarkable dream about a UFO, a very bright UFO, sparkling and leaving these trails that people often report, uh, hanging down from it, descending uh, behind a ridge that would probably lead right over the river that we're about a mile from, the Arkansas River. And I thought, wow, what a dream. It was such a shocking dream that I decided I'd get up and go go to the living room and look out the window and see if there was anything there. And lo and behold, the very thing that I had just dreamed was enacted right before my very eyes. Well, I thought, wow, that's great. I think I'll go back to sleep. Well, I did. Just immediately, she asked me, what am I doing? And I mumbled something about, oh, there's a UFO in the backyard. You know, I went on back to sleep. Now, it's not a very good thing to, to suppress this kind of stuff to stop looking at these kinds of, of uh, interactions with our lives and so when the trigger hit me again in the last week of August of this year uh, I was driving uh, home right after work rush hour five o'clock was about ten after five I was on one of the busiest stretches of highway uh, outside of the city where I work uh, it was a five-lane road just two lanes in each direction with one of those turn lanes in the middle the kind that you know you like to get killed on and there was nobody else on the road in either direction. Now, this is a big road. I can see about a mile in each direction. No idea where everybody is. Makes me kind of nervous, so I reach in my pocket. You know, I'm still the nervous kind of get a cigarette. And I reach down and hit the cigarette lighter and look up in the rearview mirror. Now, remind you, I remember now, there's nobody around. Well, right on the bumper of my car is a big black Chevrolet. Black windows. Aggressive as all get out, not making a blooming sound. I didn't hear it coming. I had no idea where it came from. There was no dust out of any driveway or anything where this guy would have spun out. To get and he is less than three feet behind me. Well, cigarette lighter then makes its little pop out, and I reach down, grab it, light my cigarette, look back up the rearview mirror, and it's gone. I have no idea what that was all about. I said, but I recognize the signs. Like something is going on. About a week later, I had a, a dream, one of these lucid-type dreams that you've been hearing more and more about. In this, in this dream, instead of being, you know, floating around the clouds or, or maybe an astral trip or something like that, I had weight. I had weight, and I had temperature, and I had sight and smell, and I was on a stage. Not, not unlike this one, but not quite. It was like I was in a cave somewhere with, with, these, with this one really yellow light on me, surrounded by a lot of people or things that I could not see. I was right on the edge of the stage because in the center of the stage there was this, these acts going on that I can't, I can't, I couldn't look at. They were, they were grotesque acts between two people. And I felt like I just was getting ready to perform in this act or I had just finished performing in this act. And I was with, and I, I don't like talking about this, people might think that I'm, I'm a little obsessed, but what it was, there was a young lady from work somebody that almost everybody at works admires and likes because she's so outgoing and vivacious. But she and I were both stripped naked. We were hurting. She was in terror. She was crying. The terror was so thick in the air as, that I described it the next morning as, as being able to reach out and grab a handful of it and squeeze it out and drip out of my hands. Well, what I felt was not a lust or a feeling of excitement. What I felt was sorrow and pity and all I could do was hold this person and tell her how sorry I was and that it was going to be okay and that we were going to get through this. 
And I felt, I felt real warmth, real touch. It was not like a dream, any dream I'd ever had. But I kept this to myself because I, I was not prepared to deal with the feelings that this thing brought up in me. It was about two weeks later that I had another one of these kind of dreams, and only this time Carla was with me, and we were, we were the good guys. We were out, boy, we were investigating everything. We had decided we were going to become PIs, and we were hot on the case. We were going after the bad guys, and, and when I became aware and cognizant in the dream, we were after a, we were right on their tails, and it was a, I think a brother and sister, or two cousins, or an aunt and uncle, or something like that. These two were related somehow, because I found we found out that one of them was right out here in the neighborhood, and if we got out there and got her, we or got this person, we'd catch the perpetrator of this terrible crime, like good and evil. We took off after him, and we boy, arm and arm, we floated just as fast as we could possibly go. And this person was just right ahead of us, and we were, I think we were all on feet, so that's why, on foot. So that's why I think it was, it was a dream, but it was an object lesson, because when we got on, I got right up to her, she turned around, and well, actually, just as we got up to her, I got this feeling that this one is the innocent one, the other one, the one that you did not chase was the bad guy. This one is perfect. This one is sweet. This one is innocent. Alluring, yeah, but I mean, you know, let's don't let's don't worry about that. This is something for you to follow. But that was not what was really going on. Perfect innocence. Again, jeez, what a dream! I told, I told you, dream. You know that we're the good guys. We're the PIs. We found out who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. Boy, does it feel good to know who they are. Two days later, I'm walking down. Now I never did see the face of this person, but I certainly knew what it felt like. Two days later, I'm out at the mall in town, having just finished lunch uh, with, with a friend of mine. We were walking back through the mall, going up to the parking deck. Around the corner comes this woman. It is the woman. I've never seen this person in the flesh in my, in my entire life. But at the moment that our eyes met, you get those feelings of recognition from sometimes, sometimes from people where, I know you, I've met you before, we are really good friends. For a split second, I couldn't tell you if it was a minute, I mean a, a full second or, or two or just a half a second, there was a complete communication between the two of us. She opened her arms to say hi, her eyes got wide, I could see the smile and she did, she said hi. And I said hi right back, it was like, and then I, all of a sudden I felt myself seeing me through her and I got the impression that she was seeing herself through me. I thought, wow, what a wonderful experience. Something wasn't going right because that Friday night, uh, Carl and I went out with some friends of ours, and when the evening was over, I just I, we had about an hour's drive back to our home in the, in the forest, and I, I just had to tell her what was going on. I said, look, we had these, I had these experiences, I had these dreams, and this was perfect. You know, we, we know who the good guys are, we know who the bad guys are, we're, on, we're hot on their trail. But I didn't feel right. But I thought, I'd been, I thought that I had received the message that we're doing the right thing, that we will find who's good and who's bad. Turns out that, well, I actually was about this uh, last weekend, that my perceptions had been so clouded by what I wanted to be right, what I thought was right, that I had failed to recognize the important thing is what do I feel is right. Turns out to me, to my satisfaction, what I believe is that what I felt in caring for the person who was under this terrible duress, this person who was so thoroughly degraded and exposed these awful creatures that the feeling I had was of love and compassion and empathy that was the right feeling to have and that it had been offset by this thinking sensation of well I know what is right I think that I've got the answers so what I did today when, when, when I was trying to get ready for this this conference and to talk to you, you people I decided that how I would approach telling you what's been going on and to add to what's in the book and perhaps even tell some of you who don't know what's in the book a little bit of what's going on is to tell you what I think and what I feel. And I'm going to take you from A to Z, try to keep this a little bit short so that we can continue if you want to know more uh, during the discussions. I felt that what I should do was, was when I got here was to get a great big letter A and paste it on my forehead so that you'd all know that I was an abductee. I think about that a lot. I think about being abducted quite a bit. I feel the alien. I think about the alienation. 
the things that have gone on to all of us who have been abducted and tried to talk to our friends. I mean, I still don't talk to the folks at work. I, I like my job. I want to keep it. And I don't think they're ready, even though a few individuals are. I don't think they're quite ready. So what that makes me feel, what the whole thing makes me feel now, on the opposite side of that thinking process, is that I do feel angry. I feel angry at the, at the people who are abducting us. And not only that, but I feel angry at the denial that the uh, so-called thinkers in our society uh, have, have constantly, constantly heap on us. They deny that we see these things. They deny that they could possibly happen. Our religious leaders do, do not, they just do not want to recognize that we are more than what they say we are. And that, that does make me angry. I mean, Carl Sagan used to be my hero. I was a science nut when I was in high school. I loved everything the man had to say and believed it. But he's really upset me here lately. People like that. I think about all the times that I've been beguiled. You know, I think like, like that dream. That was a positive dream. Man, everything is wonderful. But inside, I feel terrible. That is not right. I was beguiled. I didn't get better. Pain got worse. So I feel betrayed. I feel betrayed by the by religion, by science and by these deceptive uh, spiritual forces, so-called spiritual forces. Think about what they do to control us. For example, before I got married the first time, I was held totally controlled, just like the guy that rolls over in bed, and I've done that too, um, while my soon-to-be fiancé was taken off by the little... Uh, I call them reptoid aliens. They certainly didn't look great to me. It was the middle of the night. They had gray eyes. I mean, uh, yellow eyes. But I was controlled. Uh, I was also controlled when my son, my two-year-old son, was abducted. Middle of the daytime. I was given, treated to my very own personal California earthquake when I was sitting out behind our house, not being able to get back in the house, while he was abducted. So I think about this, these controlling things that, that happened to us. And I feel concerned. I feel concerned not only for my children. I feel concerned for all of us and all of our involvement. I think about the disinformation, the debunkers, the experts, and I feel deceived. I think about the infringement that intrudes on, on all of the abductees' lives. We are infringed upon. It's not our choice. They do it. We don't ask them to. I really don't. Haven't, I haven't seen a document that I signed couple of millennia ago saying that it's okay for me to come back and do this now. I do remember under deep regression thinking that it's time to get back, that it's time to be with people, it's time to feel and experience again. But I don't ever recall saying, I want to go back and have this thing happen to me. All this makes me kind of feel emasculated because from 11 months old, during my first experience, all the way through my life, there has been this force out there that won't let me do what I want to do. There's a force out there that's, that stays hidden. It hides all the time. That takes away a lot from a person. Think about fear. Well, there for a while, yeah, we did have a lot of fear. Uh, I was unknown. Uh, I wasn't really curious. I wanted to hide. I wanted to run, but don't feel that anymore. Because what I feel now is that I have an extended family. My fellow abductees, not a finer group of people that I've ever met. Sure, there's some jerks, there's some really nice people, there's some really hard to know people, but I feel that we're a family. Think about the gifts that we've all been given. You know, our awareness, the fact that we're not sitting in a closet somewhere think, uh, or, or so tied up in our ABCs or our one, two, threes that we can't think about this. I think about the friends that I've gained my, and my wife and the fact that I'm one of the healthier people that I know. So I feel kind of guided to places. I feel guided, like, I feel guided to meet Carla, I feel guided to be with that first person that I married, but it goes beyond coincidence. It feels like there's some sort of psychic connection here. I do feel, I, I, I think that I've been helped that there are some beneficial forces out there. You know, like, I have a daughter that was born with a heart defect, and for the first year of her life, three times a week, I took her to the, to the physician so that she could have an EKG, gave her digitalis every day. On her first, for her first birthday, the president was going to be a catheterization to see what kind of damage there was to her heart so that it could be repaired. I was in the service at the time, and these people, they're not bad, believe me. They, they gave me a compassionate reassignment to, so that I could be near Walter Reed uh, Army Hospital 
outside of Washington, D.C. My daughter was, was checked out by the, the head cardiolo pediatric cardiologist at Walter Reed Hospital. She did indeed have a heart defect, and it was a major one, and he agreed with the medication that she was on and wondered why we hadn't had surgery done before, but then after, I mean, after having gone over his rec the records that came with us, she was able to see that, yeah, they had done the right thing, and she really probably wasn't strong enough to handle uh, a heart uh, operation at that time. The night before her operation, a bunch of my friends and my family got together, and we prayed for help. We asked for help we, for this young child, not for any of us, not to make us feel better, but so that she could have a good life and enjoy life. Next morning, after the daughter, my daughter went through the uh, catheterization, sitting out in the lobby, the doctor came out, face as white as his coat, said, sit down. Next thing out of his mouth was, do you believe in miracles? Something happened to that young lady yesterday. Her EKG is perfect today. We don't know why. We could see where there was a hole in her heart the size of a nickel. This is a very tiny child. Huge hole in her heart. It's closed down to a tiny pinpoint. Something that's never, a lot of us have. It's not going to give her any trouble. And she never has had another bit of trouble with her heart. So we do have some beneficial agents out there. Something that does care about us. Something that does help us. And I'm really thankful. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like, it, you know, there's been an awful lot of harm that, that has happened too. Friends of mine have been killed. This is not the same spiritual force. I know that there's things that are out there that are harmful. I feel there are things out there that are harmful. I feel that I, I think about the invasion. You know, it's like, golly, here we are thinking that we're the only thing in the whole universe. And find out, no, we're not. We have been invaded. Both, and we, I was, I was implanted with something at the age of 12, and I was raped at the age of 13 by by an alien, female-looking type creature. Yeah, I've been invaded, and that makes me feel indignant. You know, I get really upset about that. Those kind of beyond anger. Hey, they don't have a right to do this. Well, on the other hand, here I am. I'm a Libra. Those of you that, don't, that don't like to think about that sort of thing know that I'm going to sit here and weigh these things back and forth. So I really do try to come up with some justification. Is there any justification for what's happened to me? Uh, turn out rationalizing things, but I still try to come up with a justification for it all. But I don't really feel there is any justification for the types of things that are going on with us. At the age of five, I felt truly judged. I was, one afternoon, I remember laying down to take a nap. Next thing I know, instead of sleeping, I'm being carried off by my mother and my aunt to a school. I'm five, never been to school, don't know where this thing is. But I know something's wrong because the sky's green, the clouds are orange and black, and the school is totally deserted. Nobody's left but this really old janitor who proceeds to take me by the hand away from, from mom and aunt, puts me in a room where there's all of these panels and, and instruments, and boy, do I go through stuff. Still haven't been able to recall everything that happened, but I do know that when it was all over, he kind of booted me out and said, time to go, kid. Next thing I know, I'm waking up in my bed. Was indeed judged that day to some degree. I don't I really feel that I was judged, put through a mass or an intelligence test, perhaps. Along the way, though, some, that something has happened that's kindled a spark of human dignity within me. Despite of all the fear, in spite of all the anger that I have, I know that there's something good inside of me, and there's something, there's something good inside of all of us. We deserve better than the way we're being treated by these creatures. And I really do have feelings of kindness for my, for my fellow beings. Those that are of us, not only that are being tortured and abused, but all of us. I care about all of humanity. I can't, I, I can't love them all. I'm really, I'm not nearly anything like Mother Teresa, but I still have a feeling. And since, a, since I was a child, first grade, the only person I remember in the first grade is a little fat girl who nobody liked. Made me feel so bad. I just, and found out she was a great person. We had a good time. We had a great time. She was a wonderful person. But she looked different than everybody else. Think about all of the lies that everybody's told us. They're everywhere. And I feel a loss of the innocence that's beyond the human cause. I don't think humans cause the this feeling of loss inside of me. Think about all the manipulations. Uh, I didn't want to marry the, my first wife. I didn't like her very much. I couldn't stop it. I was manipulated to ask me. I never intended to ask this lady to marry me, and it just came out of my mouth. Never intended to marry her. 
I was at the altar. Never intended to stay married to her. Eleven years later, I still am. Took me a while to get over that one. And I feel mutilated, you know? I mean, like, I feel that the implants I had up my nose at, at, at I think it was 12 years old, had an uh, implant up my nose, and I had my hand burned almost all the way through by some kind of device. Doctor didn't, didn't tell. He had no clue as to why he could look down the middle inside of my hand. It wasn't a burn. It was just like a clean hole burned, or clean hole scooped into my hand. There was no, no trauma, none whatsoever. Something since then has apparently come out because every once in a while, little flakes of something come out the bottom of my palm. So I don't know what, what was put in my hand at that time, but I, I, I definitely know something was. And the thought, the very thing that triggered my whole memory and started the whole book and got Carla and I into this was in 1987 when I was abducted, taken aboard something and put into a really smelly, stinky place by these really crude, awful creatures. My legs up near in my chin, someone grabbed something, grabbed a hold of this scalpel or some device and just took it down my leg and said, now you're going to remember, you're going to remember this. And that's when I got that, that scar that they wanted to put in in Carlos' book, but it wasn't uh, a good enough picture to reproduce on, on uh, old paper. But I have a, about a two, two and a half inch scar on the back of my leg that was, it just healed up overnight. Don't know where it came, I do know where it came from, I didn't at the time, and it sure did make me mad. I remember being angry at the scar, but not really having any, any kind of place to, to put it. So, to get on here, I think about the nature of this phenomenon. I think, it, I think it's psychological, and I think it's physical. And I think it's spiritual. It's all of us. It's, it's the whole thing. The, the nature of this phenomena is everything that we are. I think that we humans, uh, are, I, feel, I feel needed. You know, I think this has given me a, a, a way to relate to people in a different way. Uh, I like to be there for my, other, for my fellow abductees. I, I really feel that we need each other. I'm going through the alphabet here, piano. Um, I think about the times that I've been open, that I've been opened up to new ideas and possibilities, both uh, natural ideas, you know, good food, clean living, all that kind of stuff. I smoke cigarettes because I don't want to taste good to these bad aliens. Uh, I think about the, the spiritual uh, aspects of it all, and I feel, but I feel obtruded upon. You know, my some of the feelings that I've had, like the feeling of love for this for this not so good person, the emotions that I had. Uh, that I was left uh, to deal with that. They weren't my own. They were, they were put there, not mine. I feel picked, or I think about being picked because my grandmother, things happened to her back to the turn of the century. They happened to my parents. They've happened to my children. So I do think about being picked, and I think that a lot of people are. Yes, I've got a bunch of Celtic in me, and i got the old Cherokee Indian, and I'm a negative uh, blood type B, uh, kind of rare. I mean, you know, it's, it's a real pain if I need blood transfusion. I feel panicked sometimes. Uh, what's next? But I'm not too worried about that. Yeah, I, get, I think I have. I think that I've become more questioning. You know, I'm really curious. I do want to have answers. I come here. I go there. I really try to keep up with everybody. And at the same time, I feel there that there has been a quickening. There's been a, like a life generated here that needs to be nurtured. Uh, need to expand my mind to meet to stay up with this life. I think about reality. Is it or isn't it? There was a while ago that I just wanted to get a great big bumper sticker, stick it on my car, and it says, reality isn't. I do feel ready. I, I have a feeling of readiness, though. When I was in the service, our, the motto of the group that I was with was always vigilant. Two simple, two simple words, and I always try to stay that way. I think about the symbology of the whole thing, you know, like the UFO and, and uh, the triangle cuts and the marks that we see on each other. And I feel sad. I feel sad at the abuse that, uh, at, at each other, that we all suffer from. I feel sad about the deception. Uh, I want to know the truth. I think a lot about the truth. What's the nature of it? And how in the world can we judge it? Well, I've come to, I've come to my own conclusion in that when I, I feel I try to have feelings of trust. It's a feeling of trust in me. Do I decide? I don't look at, I cannot look at a being or another person and say, do I trust that, I mean, do I like that person? Do I trust that person? Do I let my head make this decision? No, it's time to let my heart make that decision. I think about the universe, the physical universe, and I think beyond it. 
and I try to take, pay attention to my feelings of understanding when those little bulbs go off that say, ah, got it. I think about the vitality of the human race, the physical body and our consciousness and our soul. I feel a lot of it's kind of virtual reality. Reality itself may be a virtual program running in our collective consciousness. I'm not too sure, but I do know that you can change it. I think about wisdom. Number one question is, who has any? Shamans, priests, scientists, lawyers, doctors, government people, military? No, I think it's us. I think we're the ones that are gaining in wisdom. And I feel a wonder. Just guys, Sometimes I feel just like a little kid again. Pick up a marble and look in it and see the whole world. You know, floating around there. Your own little universe. Even today, things hit me. I mean, I'm somewhat jaded by the history that I, you know, of my past, but I still just get these great rushes. I like hearing from, from you all. Think about xenophobia, hey, breaking down of xenophobia. I mean, it just would not, I mean, I don't think, I think I would be surprised, but I don't think that if I saw another creature walk up, shake my hand, or, or ask me to sit down, or come talk to him, that I would be just totally turned off by appearance. Even though I feel x-rayed. I feel like I've been x-rayed physically, I feel like I've been x-rayed mentally, and I feel like I've been x-rayed spiritually. Think about the lost youth I didn't have. I mean, 11 months old, this guy picks me up, and from then on, I'm looking around to, to see what in the world's going on. But I never lost that yearning, those feelings of yearning for more. Flying down to the Z's. Think about the zeal with, with which you and I and all of us have, have approached our own agenda, how we've decided to come here. This is the place for us. We're not going to let go. I'm going to leave you with my feelings of zero hour. The big one is at that hand? Yeah, I think so. How do we get here? By all the little zero hours that each one of us have gone through. I really thank you. Do you have any questions? Thank you.